if you would take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. We come to the end of our study in the Gospel of Mark, and we do so by looking at the last 12 verses of the book, and in some of the more modern translations, there's a note that the earliest manuscripts um, and other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. Some scholars have argued that these verses should not be included in the Gospel of Mark, and they give reasons for this, uh, to try to prove that Mark didn't write these last 12 verses. There are new words, 14 new words that are found here that aren't found in the rest of the book. The style of writing is different, the phrasing, and many other reasons. This is unfortunate because, in fact, the verses do belong to the Gospel of Mark, and the fact that some manuscripts don't have it doesn't mean that it sh these verses should be excluded. I want to review a bit uh, from last week uh, before we actually get into these verses. Um, I believe that these verses are part of the Gospel of Mark, um, and I think that the arguments fail to, to note a really critical point. Um, it's a fundamental mistake, an error, about the nature of Scripture. And last week we looked at this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, Paul, writing to Timothy, says, How from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. As I said last week, either we see what Paul describes as impersonal, that truth is simply information, um, scripture gives us instructions, something that's useful, as Paul says, or we see scripture and truth as something that is personal, which animates and gives direction. It functions like something that is alive. It teaches, it rebukes, it corrects, it trains in righteousness. Living when and where we do, we are profoundly affected by the enlightenment in which we find this fact versus value dichotomy. And those who are not believers would say, well, Christianity and religion, that's in the value category. And Christians have made the mistake of saying, no, 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 we're, f we're in the fact category. You know, it's, you know, a fact is a fact is a fact. Um, and usually facts are seen as quite impersonal. They're bits of information, purely informational. And therefore we've come up, I think, with a mistake, well, I don't know if I would say mistaken, but an incomplete view of scripture, that we see scripture as conveying information rather than being something that is alive. Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. The more familiar from the King James, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The ESV has, all scripture is breathed out by God. As I mentioned last week, I'd point out two things. First of all, uh, it is scripture that is God-breathed, that it is scripture that is inspired. Uh, as opposed to the writer. And we tend to think of the writer as inspired, and then he writes this down, and then we have all of this information that he gives us. The second thing that I would point out is, this is the second time in Scripture that we are told about God breathing into something. The first is found in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
and the man became a living being. Both human beings and scripture are God-breathed. God breathes them out. I'm convinced that just as we are alive, we are living beings, so is scripture. So when Paul says it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, we should agree that scripture is alive and it functions as something that is alive. Not simply a, a set of instructions, a set of facts. It is something that is quite alive. You know, teaching and rebuking, one might say that's about right belief, that you need to believe the right things. And correcting and training righteousness, well, that, that's your behavior. Uh, and I think, I would suspect, that we sort of lean more toward the right belief than we do the right behavior. Uh, creed over uh, conduct. Uh, in verse number 14, before the passage that I read, Paul says, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. And again, I think we're like, oh, this is information. Paul conveyed doctrine to Timothy. He told Timothy certain things, and that's what he wanted Timothy to remember. Um, but before that, Paul says, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance. I think we would have been happier if, if Paul had stopped after, you know my teaching, the King James, you know my doctrine. That's, I think, where we would have put the period. And then truth would have been simply information. And as a result, it would have been quite impersonal. It would have been the interior life, you know, the, the doctrine. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life. He spoke this as a living being. He is the living truth. So when we come to these last 12 verses of Mark, and we're told that certain manuscripts don't contain them, um, what do we make of this? Did Mark write these verses? Uh, should they be included? Uh, as I said last week, I don't know if he wrote them or not. But it doesn't matter because scripture is what is God-breathed. And it doesn't matter, in a sense, who wrote it. Mark, in fact, may have written the rest of the book, but these last 12 verses somebody else may have added, but they are scripture and should be recognized as such. One thing I didn't mention last week, and I would be remiss if I don't mention it here. Um, the Spirit of God is involved in the writing of scripture, okay? I don't want to make it sound like these guys write it and then somehow it magically it becomes inspired. That God, in fact, does work through the writers. First Peter chapter 1, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1. And we have the word of prophets made more certain, and you would do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And while this does not deal specifically or primarily with scripture, we do get a sense that it is the nature of the work of those who are God's servants, the prophets, that it is they are carried along by the Spirit. It isn't something like, yeah, I think I'll do this, but it is the Spirit that guides them. So the question is, did Mark write 
the last 12 verses. But let's go back to another question. Who wrote the rest of the book? Uh, the writer doesn't tell us who he is, but neither did Matthew's writer or Luke or John. Um, we are told about a man in the book of Acts named John Mark. Uh, his name was Marcus, as Marcus Noble is with us today. And this name occurs uh, eight times in the book or in the New Testament, four times in Acts, and then one time each in the epistles. In Acts chapter 12, we are told the story, and Zib will read it to us uh, perhaps in a month or so, that Peter is arrested and he is put in prison, but he is rescued by an angel out of prison. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything that Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. By the way, it's an interesting part of the story that, that they're in there praying and Peter comes, comes to the outside gate and knocks and they send a servant out, uh, Rhoda, and she sort of looks and it's, it says, it's, it can't be Peter. She runs back in and says, I think it's you know, Peter's ghost. You know, they're praying for him to be released and when he's released, they can't believe that God answered their prayer. Uh, it sounds vaguely familiar in my own life. Later in this chapter, we are told that when Saul and Barnabas had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, and they took with them John, also called Mark. We find out that Mark wasn't always, well, he caused a split between Paul and Barnabas, uh, because on their first journey, they went to the first island, and then he bailed. He left, you know, he left them. And so when they did their second journey, um, Barnabas says, let's, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul's like, no way, no way. And so they went their separate ways. Paul took Silas and Barnabas took John Mark. But there was reconciliation. In 2 Timothy 4, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. This is who we think wrote the Gospel of Mark. This is what the church has maintained in the second century. One more thing. I maybe should have mentioned this earlier. You know, we have these 12 verses, the long ending of Mark, as some people call it. But we also have, in the Gospel of John, an additional ending. And nobody seems to, well, first of all, scholars, many of them reject the entire Gospel of John. But the last verse of John, uh, last two verses... This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Well, that would seem that John is not writing that. Somebody else had added that, that, yep, this is what John wrote, and we know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them was, were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have, or the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. It's a much shorter ending, but it is something that is added to the end of the Gospel of John. And was it written by John? Probably not. It doesn't mean that it is in Scripture. So now let's come to these last 12 verses 
of the Gospel of Mark in Mark 16. The first part of it deals with the post-resurrection appearances, um, which are also recorded and in greater detail in other Gospels. So if you would look at verses 9, 10, and 11. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and she had seen him, they did not believe it. This is a shorter version of what we find in John chapter 20. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, or crying. As she wept, she, went, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead and tell my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. She's mentioned earlier in chapter 15, but now we're given additional information. Apparently, at some point in her life, she was possessed by seven demons. This is mentioned also in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 8, 2. And just think a minute. We, we talked about this. If the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus are women, yet you would not include that in your book because women were not allowed to give testimony in court. Um, they were believed so unreliable that you could not trust them as witnesses. So the fact that these women are put down as the first witnesses of the resurrection is quite startling. But now, one of those women was someone who had been possessed by seven demons. It's like, right, this is somebody we're really going to find reliable. And yet this is what Mark puts down, that Mary Magdalene was, in fact, the first witness. She is the first witness of the resurrected Jesus. Then in verses 12 and 13, we're told about two others. They weren't witnesses per se, but Jesus appeared to them. Verses 12 and 13. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. A fuller account of this is given in Luke 24, and I mentioned this last week. It's, I think, my favorite post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Um, there are two of them who are walking, and who are these two? Well, some people say well, it's two of the 11, but that's not possible because the 11 are back in Jerusalem and these two go and tell them about the fact that they had seen Jesus. Well, if not the 11, then at least two men. You know, some commentators have entitled their section there the two men of, of Emmaus. They're walking on the road to Emmaus, seven miles away from Jerusalem, 
and Jesus appears to them. As I've argued before, it's not two men. It's Cleopas, who is given by name, and his wife Mary. It's a husband and wife. It's Sunday. Jesus has been resurrected. They've heard stories about this from the women. And now they're walking home and they're talking about this. Now that same day, the two of them, or two of them, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. In other words, this is a theological discussion that is happening between a husband and his wife. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked, are you only a visitor in Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hope that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, explained to them what was said in scriptures concerning himself. At a certain point, their eyes are open and they know this is Jesus. And they go back and they tell the people in town, Jesus has been raised. But in Mark's account, Mary Magdalene tells them Jesus has been risen. She's seen him. They don't believe her. These two have an encounter with Jesus, and they tell them, and they don't believe them either. So finally, we get to verse number 11, where Jesus appears to the disciples. Later, Jesus appeared to the 11 as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. This is also fleshed out. We're given a longer account in John 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, so it's Sunday, Easter Sunday, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. With that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Two different accounts, and it's quite interesting. Mark tells us that Jesus rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith. They refuse to believe Mary Magdalene. They refuse to believe Cleopas and Mary, who had encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus. If you've been with us in our study of the Gospel of Mark, this shouldn't surprise you at all. The disciples were marked by a lack of understanding and by their unbelief. Think of the times Jesus told them something and either they didn't understand or they didn't believe it. 
And they sought to correct him. When Jesus told them that he was going to Jerusalem, he would be put to death. And Peter's like, that's not going to happen. That is not going to happen. Excuse me? Jesus is the teacher. Peter is the pupil, and he is correcting the teacher. So, when we are told, Mary Magdalene says, the Lord's risen. The two, Cleopas and Mary, say, we talk to Jesus. They don't believe. Big surprise. And yet, John's account says that when Jesus appears to them, they are filled with joy. Um, What's going on here? Now, I would say the conversation may have begun with Jesus rebuking them. And then afterwards, they're filled with joy. Or the reverse. When they first see him, they are filled with joy. And then Jesus rebukes him and says, listen, don't you get it? You know, I've told you that this is what's going to happen. But in either case, we have him rebuking them, and they are also filled with joy. And then verses 15 through 18. This is what is known as the Great Commission. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and they will drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. Things to consider. And again, we have a fuller version of this at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is in Galilee, and then he says to them, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Interesting. Who is to be the audience of their teaching and preaching? Mark says that Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. That might seem a bit strange to us. I thought you were supposed to preach to human beings. We hear similar language, by the way, in Paul's letter to the Colossians. This is the gospel that you have heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. One might wonder and scratch your head and say, is this to be taken literally? But I think the point is being made, at least in my opinion, that the gospel is about the redemption of all creation. Most people think of salvation is me getting my ticket punched so I get to go to heaven. And then, you know, forget the rest of this world, the creation. No. We have seen the paradigm. God created the world. It's creation. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, it is now marred. It has fallen. Jesus has come to redeem creation. And the result will be a new creation. Uh, The reality is salvation and redemption isn't simply for us. We get to go to heaven. It is, in fact, God redeeming all of creation. Much has been made of St. Francis of Assisi. It is said that he preached to birds and to animals. 
I'm not sure that we should do that, but I think he had a real sense that all of creation is important, that Jesus came and Jesus died not just so I can go to heaven. Jesus died to redeem his creation. That's how important creation is. And it's sad that Christians oftentimes have been marked by a lack of care for creation, for the environment. It's all about us getting out of here and going to heaven. Then also notice the importance of baptism. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And it's interesting that here at the end of the book, near the end of the book, we hear language that we heard at the beginning. Uh, that John is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. So John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism was a significant part of John's ministry, so much so that he is known as John the Baptizer. This is what he did. But it doesn't end with him when Herod has his head chopped off. Baptism continues in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, interestingly, though, we are not told that Jesus ever himself baptized someone. In John 4, 1 and 2, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So baptism begins in the ministry of John the baptizer. It continues in the ministry of Jesus. And now it is, continue, it is to continue in the church after Jesus has ascended. It's important, but it does not save. You'll notice it says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will, not, will be condemned. It doesn't say whoever does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned. The emphasis is not on baptism, but on faith. Baptism follows faith. It is a demonstration of faith. It is not faith itself. So it is important, but it is not all important. It is not that which saves us. And then we come to verses 17 and 18, and this is what throws a lot of people and why a lot of people would be happier if these 12 verses weren't part of the Gospel of Mark, because it seems really strange uh, that they, the believers will be able to drive out demons, they will speak in tongues, this is the weird part, they will be able to pick up snakes and drink poison and not be hurt, they will place their hands on the sick and heal them. Um, I don't know about you, but I have not spoken in tongues. I have not driven out demons. Uh, I'm not really fond of snakes. I've never handled a snake or drunk poison or put my hands on someone to heal them. So does this mean that what Jesus said, in fact, did not come true? No. And this is where we need to sort of check ourselves, where we are in human history. We are in the age of individualism. And we think that a promise that Jesus made, it's a promise he made to me. It's for me. I remember as a child in Sunday school singing a song, every promise in the book is mine. Uh, how's the rest of it go? Every chapter, every verse, every line, it's, it's for me. No, we are the body of Christ. 
And if it is fulfilled in one part of the body, it is fulfilled throughout the body. So I don't have to pick up a snake and a snake bite me and it doesn't kill me. It's what happened to Paul when he landed at Malta when they were shipwrecked. I don't have to put my hands on someone and they receive their sight. That's what Ananias did with Saul in Damascus. I don't have to cast out demons. Paul did this, we're told, uh, in Acts chapter 19. In fact, the book of Acts tells us about all of these except for the drinking of poison. I find that interesting. Uh, But the fact is, I don't have to, in my life, experience these signs for them to be true. If one part of the church, if one member of the church in human history has this fulfilled in them, then that's good enough because together we make up the body of Christ. And now we come to the last two verses. After Jesus had spoken to them, the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied them. So there it is. These signs, in fact, were fulfilled in the apostles. This is a very abbreviated form. It doesn't give us a lot of detail about the ascension. Luke tells us more in Acts 1. He said to them, It is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So here we're actually given sort of a visual uh, presentation of what happened when Jesus ascended. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee. They said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And then we had this read to us fairly recently, uh, Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of the Father. And then the last verse is verse number 20. The disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. It's quite different, a very different ending than what we find at verse number 8. At verse number 8, the women are trembling, they're bewildered. Uh, They don't say anything to anyone because they, in fact, are afraid. And now at the end here of verse number 20, the disciples go out. The Lord goes with them by the Spirit. And they preach the gospel and the signs accompany them wherever they go. Okay, we've come to the end of Mark. What did we learn in our weeks in this, in this uh, gospel? Two things stand out to me. I'm sure there are many others, but first of all, p- parables. In chapter 4, verse 34, uh, 33 and 34, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. 
But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Now we saw that it isn't just the parables. In fact, Matthew has way more parables than does the Gospel of Mark in terms of this short story that has an application to it. We see that it is not only in what Jesus taught that there are parables, but also in his actions, such as the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. There's a lot to this, but it's something that is stuck in my mind, that Jesus did nothing apart from parables. We would prefer doctrine. We would prefer straightforward information. Just give us the facts. And instead, Jesus tells stories that we have to sort of unravel and unpack to understand what he's saying. That's the first thing. But then the big thing that really struck me in our study here is that Jesus did things in a way that we would not. Um, One would say it was even unusual. In going through the Gospel of Mark, we may find ourselves being much like the disciples who are like, yeah, I, I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't do it that way. So, for example, the Syrophoenician woman that is outside of Jewish territory She has a daughter who's possessed, and she asks Jesus to heal the daughter. And Jesus is like, hey, I've come to the house of Israel. Um, He makes, in fact, what some might consider racist overtones in his response. Um, You know, if somebody would come to you for help, would you not, in fact, want to help them? She comes to Jesus for help, and he seems to push back. It's like, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I don't think I'm going to do that. But in fact, it draws out the woman's faith, and her daughter is healed. Or when Jesus uh, healed a deaf man who had a speech impediment, we are told that Jesus stuck his fingers in the man's ear and laid his hand on or He didn't lay his hand on him. That's what we would have done. He stuck his finger in the guy's ear. And then he spits on his fingers and puts it on the man's tongue. It's like, gross. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't do it that way. Or when he fed the, uh, the 4,000, the second feeding, the first time was 5,000, the second time 4,000, um, seemed really inefficient that he had the people gather and then he sent the disciples out and gave them bread. You know, he prayed. And then he gave them the bread, and it fed miraculously 4,000 people. Um, And then some fish showed up, and then he prayed again, broke the fish, and sent it out with the disciples. It seems really inefficient. You know, why not just like one big prayer for the bread and the fish? Uh, Just come away with a sense like, yeah, I, I wouldn't do things that way. And then people come to him, the Pharisees, and say, you know, we need a miraculous sign. And if you're the disciples, you're like, this guy's been doing miracles left and right. But he won't do a miraculous sign for these people? I I would do it. Because you do it, and then they would believe. Jesus knew, in fact, that they would not. I think, like the disciples, we might imagine that we have a better vision of what the kingdom of God should look like. We think we know better. We think we know how God should be at work in the world. And then there's the whole business of his suffering in the cross. 
yeah, I don't think I would have done things that way. It's so familiar to us now. We're like, well, yeah, he had to do that. But I just find that like the disciples, in our daily lives, there come points where we may say, yeah, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is not the way things should be done. As we said in the prayer of confession, you know, we ask, don't you care? Don't you care what I'm going through? Why are you doing things the way that you're doing things? And yet, here at the end of Mark, I at least, and I hope you are convinced, that Jesus was truly human, and he was also the Son of God. The Lord may not do things the way we want them done, but he is the Lord God Almighty. And Jesus did things just seem really strange. But he is the Lord God Almighty. And in our lives, we may get frustrated and just say, don't you care? What's going on? The Lord knows exactly what he's doing. And if you doubt that, go back and read the Gospel of Mark one more time. Let's pray together. Our Father, ever since Adam and Eve, we think we know better than you. You give commands and we don't obey because we think there's a better way. There are times when we think that, frankly, you're, you're primitive you belong in the pre-modern age and we are now modern, post-modern people. We know better than that. We live in a scientific age. I thank you for the Gospel of Mark and how we see ourselves in the disciples time after time after time imagining, yeah, I, I wouldn't do it that way. But Jesus does it his own way. He knows what is best. And he spoke and he acted in parables. Open our eyes, soften our hard hearts, so to see the truth of your love for us. Just as Jesus loved the rich young ruler who thought he was a perfect man and walked away from Jesus, we know that you love us with a love that is beyond our comprehension. By your grace, help us to trust you. To bow before you in submission, as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. I thank you for the Gospel of Mark and for the time we've had studying it together. Spirit, may you drive its truths home to our hearts. May you bring things to our memory from time to time that we might meditate on them. I thank you for bringing us together today. It's the first day of autumn, first Sunday of autumn. We're grateful for your faithfulness in our lives.
May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.